Today's show is brought to you by SouthernAccentRestaurant.com. Use their online shop to recreate a Cajun and Creole dinner at home with their custom sauces, filet powders, and voodoo paste. Don't feel like cooking? Order a prefix meal for pickup. Welcome to episode number one of Last Call with Richard Krause, the podcast dedicated to remembering details and cocktails from my favorite bars and restaurants. I spent 17 years slinging drinks and now I'm slinging stories. Most of you have probably had a Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary, full of vodka, blessed are you among cocktails. It's a delicious mix of vodka, spices, and tomato juice that is as close to a juice cleanse as many of us will ever get. But did you know the famous brunch cocktail was first mixed by a bartender in Paris? We'll get to that story and the controversy surrounding the origin of the drink soon, but not before we get to the history of Harry's New York Bar, the celebrated drinkery that lays claim to the creation of the Bloody Mary. First, though, let's hear from cocktail detectives Jared Brown and Anastasia Miller from Mixellany.com. I began by asking the cocktail couple why Harry's New York Bar has lasted for 110 years when the average lifespan of a restaurant or bar is only five years. First and foremost, Harry's is very inclusive, very welcoming, and it's a feeling about that bar that has been passed along generation to generation. I can't tell you how many times over the years we've gone in there around 4 p.m., intent on having a quick drink on our way to somewhere, (laughs) and we've left at 4 a.m., by by which point we're being taught French drinking songs by locals. And telling us to watch the 2 a.m., the the infamous 2 a.m. drunkards TV show in, in Paris, which features pink ferrets chasing after bunnies. I've never I've heard of it. Them. I've actually sat and watched this drunk on my ass and just sat there in the hotel room going, <laughs> why am I watching this? Because some guy told me to watch this. The thing that other, the other thing I always found fascinating is it's the only bar I can think of in the entire world that when the U.S. has its election, they have a big party there where everybody sits and watches the returns. It's the, it's the American expat haven in France to go there and watch the watch the election returns and they put out a full buffet and everything. All the times that I've been there, uh, everyone at the bar is American. They're, they're almost from everywhere except from Paris. Where else are you going to get a hot dog that doesn't taste like any American hot dog? I mean, it's great sausage meat, I've got to say that, and a brioche bun, you cannot complain. But it's the only place where you can get one in Paris. So, or as I've said to the manager there, as I've got one, uh, just like Yankee Stadium in its dreams. <laughs> in its dreams. <laughs> Will a bar like Harry's be around in another hundred years, do you think? Yes, I do. There are some places that no matter what you do, no matter how far down it goes, no matter how far you, you go, really, why am I sitting here? You go simply because there's the experience that makes makes the ultimate drink as you well know it isn't the drink that makes you go to a bar it's it's the surroundings the environment and the bartender and i think that if harry's ever went nobody would ever think about drinking cocktails in paris ever again 
I think I think they'd forget. Jared and Anastasia are amazing, and they'll be back after hours, right after the main event, the history of Harry's New York Bar. A drinking establishment can truly be called a classic when it becomes the stuff of fiction. Take the celebrated Harry's New York Bar, for example. It's the oldest cocktail stop in Europe, and real-life boozers like Ernest Hemingway, Coco Chanel, and Humphrey Bogart all bent elbows there. But it was James Bond who made the place internationally infamous. Ian Fleming's 1960 short story, From a View to a Kill, places 16-year-old James Bond in Paris looking for a good time. Following the instructions in Harry's newspaper ads, the future super spy phonetically tells a taxi driver to take him to Saint-Cru-Donu, the cocktail bar tucked away on a side street in central Paris under a red and gold neon sign. Here's what Ian Fleming says in the story. That started one of the memorable evenings of his life, culminating in the loss, almost simultaneous, of his virginity and his note case. In later life, if Bond wanted a solid drink, he had it at Harry's bar. I'm Richard Krauss, and this is Last Call, but we're just getting started, so stick around. Paris in 1911. What a place to be. The Belle Epoque, or beautiful era, would end in three years with the onset of World War I, but in 1911, the good times were rolling. The Eiffel Tower, or Iron Lady as she was nicknamed, was the tallest structure in the world and attracted gawkers from all over the globe. Then there was the most famous restaurant of the period, mm. Maxime's on Rue Royale. Complete with its splashy Art Nouveau decor, gold service plates originally designed for stage star Sarah Bernhardt, and of course, a collection of beautiful people that Jean Cocteau once described as an accumulation of velvet, lace, ribbons, diamonds, and what all else I couldn't describe. Newspapers breathlessly reported on the 60 detectives hired to investigate the theft of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre. The robbery was such a national scandal that thousands of people, including the anxiety-ridden visionary of literature, Franz Kafka, lined up to see the empty spot where the painting once hung. In another part of town, on stage, bolero composer Maurice Ravel's sardonic sex comedy, The Spanish Hour, about a clockmaker whose unfaithful wife attempts to make sweet, sweet love to several different men, premiered in Paris to titillation and rave reviews. It wasn't all sunshine and lollipops, though. There was a shortage of grapes in the Champagne area of France, which led to the very Parisian outrage of the Champagne riots, where frustrated farmers violently clamped down on counterfeit bubbly. But on a side street in Paris, an American named Todd Sloan's complaints that he could not find a proper cocktail in the French capital would soon lead to an institution that would quench the thirst of Parisians and foreigners alike for decades to come. Sloan made his name on horseback, becoming the first international superstar jockey. A flamboyant sportsman, he was always surrounded by beautiful women and celebrities like philanthropist Diamond Jim Brady. Sloan was such a big deal, he once turned down an offer from Edward, Prince of Wales, to ride for his stable, and Broadway legend George M. Cohan wrote the song Yankee Doodle Dandy about his high-flying style. By 1911, Sloan's glory days, though, were behind him. 
the failure of a one-man show in a New York vaudeville theater, and the minor matter of being banned for life from the sport he helped make famous for betting on races in which he had competed, led him to Paris in the company of a New York saloon owner named Clancy. With talk of prohibition back home in the United States ringing in his ears, Sloan was keen to recreate the atmosphere of a stand-up saloon in Paris where he could get a big boozy drink. No more getting a glass of vermouth and no gin when he ordered a dry martini. Using the winnings from England's Epsom Derby, that's the event that got him kicked out of the horse world for cheating, he and Clancy bought a small bistro halfway between the Scribe Hotel, which was a hangout for the foreign press, and the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, home to many foreigners with money to burn in Paris's prestigious second arrondissement. To create an authentic slice of Manhattan nightlife in Paris, the partners had a joint on 3rd Avenue in New York City called Clancy's Dismantled, shipped across the Atlantic and rebuilt Cuban mahogany, brass bar rails, the whole nine yards. Sloan hired bartenders familiar with mixing American-style drinks, named the place the New York Bar, and opened on November 26, that's Thanksgiving Day, 1911, hoping his notoriety would attract American tourists and expats looking for just a little slice of home. How about a beer? Behind the bar, a Scottish taverner named Harry Macalone brought bluster, blarney, and new drinks like his potent mix of absinthe, grenadine, orange juice, and don't forget the Gordon's Gin. The brain-busting drink took its name from a story in the news about a Russian doctor who grafted the testicles of monkeys into men as a way to increase their longevity as well as their virility. Called the monkey gland, it was a novelty drink as popular for the name as it was for the taste. His other creations, like Between the Sheets, almost sold themselves with their provocative names. The bar was popular with members of the American Field Service Ambulance Corps during World War I. They soaked up the atmosphere and the drinks, but it wasn't enough to float Sloan's flamboyant lifestyle. By 1923, he was broke, running on empty. With no other options, he sold the bar to Macalone and hightailed it back to the United States to look for loot. Harry added his name to the signboard out front and began to turn Harry's New York bar into one of the world's most legendary watering holes. But wait a second, we've gotten ahead of ourselves. Let's rewind. In 1916, Macalone hired a 16-year-old boy named Fernand Pitio, nicknamed Pete, as kitchen help. Pete worked his way up through the ranks, set a record for downing beer in one of Macalone's famous two-liter brew challenges, and took his place behind the bar shortly afterwards. It was there Pete invented one of the classic cocktails, the Bloody Mary. Other places, like the Paris Ritz and the St. Regis in New York, where Pete worked after Prohibition, and even comedian George Jessel, who was a spokesman for Smirnoff in the 1950s, tried to dubiously lay claim to the hangover cure. The ex-Vaudevillian George Jessel said, I think I invented the Bloody Mary, Red Snapper, Tomato Pickup, a Morning Glory. It happened the night before a day, and I felt I should take some good nourishing tomato juice. But what I really wanted was some of your good Smirnoff vodka. So I mixed them together, 
the juice for the body and the vodka for the spirit. And if I wasn't the first ever, I was the happiest ever. I'm sticking with cocktail historians Jared Brown and Anastasia Miller of Mixellany, who confirmed that the drink, as we know it, was first poured at Harry's in 1921. It took on new popularity at the St. Regis, where it was known as the Red Snapper, because the hotel's owner, Vincent Astor, thought Bloody Mary was too vulgar a name for his elegant clientele. But I believe Harry's invented it. According to legend, Pete gave one of the first of them to F. Scott Fitzgerald to ease a throbbing martini hangover from the night before. In the 1970s, this is what Pete said about the controversy. Translation courtesy of the internet. I initiated the Bloody Mary of today. George Jessel said he created it, but it was really nothing but vodka and tomato juice when I took it over. I cover the bottom of the shaker with four large dashes of salt, two dashes of black pepper, two dashes of cayenne pepper, and a layer of Worcestershire sauce. I then add a dash of lemon juice and some cracked ice, put in two ounces of vodka and two ounces of thick tomato juice, shake, strain, and pour. But what about the name? Some say it was named for a cocktail waitress named Mary at the Bucket of Blood Saloon, who used a mop and bucket to clean up the beer and the blood after one of the bar's many brawls. Some say it was named after movie star Mary Pickford, or Mary Tudor, Queen of England, who was known for her taste in bloody executions. Meanwhile, Jessel claimed he named the drink after department store heiress Mary Brown Warbutton, who spilled the drink on herself and exclaimed, Now, you can call me Bloody Mary, George. However the name came to be, the Bloody Mary remains delicious 100 years after Pete poured the first one at Harry's. Don't believe me? Let's use science to prove a point. A study by Senior Research Fellow at International Flavors and Fragrances Incorporated, Dr. Neil DaCosta, says that, quote, it covers almost the entire range of human taste sensations. Sweet, salty, sour, and umami, but not bitter. A proper Bloody Mary, he says, is as complex as it gets. And for that, we have Pete Petio to thank. Order a Bloody Mary at Harry's today, and you can really taste the tradition. There's no celery salt and certainly no horseradish. They will give you a lemon wedge for garnish, but don't even think about asking for a lime. Part of the pleasure of having a Bloody Mary at Harry's is watching the care the white-jacketed bartenders put into making every cocktail. We ordered Bloody Marys there recently and watched as our bartender built the drink one element at a time, but before he put in the tomato juice, he did something I'd never seen before. He picked up the glass and rolled it between his palms to ensure a thorough mix of the spices and the vodka. It's a really nice old world touch, and I've been doing it ever since. But it wasn't just the drinks that made Harry's New York bar legendary, it was the drinkers. Macalone had a skill for drawing them in. Where Sloan relied on his reputation to bring in thirsty patrons, Macalone knew you had to get their attention first. He took out ads like the one that grabbed young James Bond's eye, geared towards visiting Americans. They were encouraged to, quote, just tell the taxi driver, Sank Ru Daunu, the phonetic pronunciation of Harry's address. He posted American college football scores, served up the first hot dogs ever sold in France, and covered the dingy walls of the bar with pennants from Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. Soon, homesick expats like Ezra Pound, 
Fulton, Wilder, and Sinclair Lewis were regulars and visiting celebs like boxer Jack Dempsey, Newt Rockney, and movie star Ramon Navarro made Harry's a stopover for strong conversation and even stronger drinks. When someone had way too much to drink, which probably happened virtually every night there, Harry would send them on their way, but not before attaching a baggage tag to their jacket that read, Return me to Harry's bar. On New Year's Eve, Harry's would do a raffle for cases of champagne and Havana cigars. They used to offer up a live pig and a goose as joke prizes, but they had to give that up after one of the geese got loose and led the bar and about 300 customers on a wild goose chase around Paris to retrieve it. All that was left behind was the pig and a small boy. A customer staggered into the empty bar and snorted, So, this is what New Year's Eve is like in Paris. Paris and then promptly left. In 1924, they started doing presidential polls. Every election year, in mid-October, American expatriates and tourists cast their vote for their favorite. In 1924, they correctly chose Calvin Coolidge to retain the White House, and in the following years, the polls became such big news in Paris that in November 1960, there was gridlock all around the bar as straw voters clogged the streets with taxis on the way to Harry's to cast their vote in the Jack Kennedy versus Richard Nixon race. The straw poll does occasionally get it wrong. They didn't foresee Donald Trump in 2016, and in 2020, for the first time since World War II, there was no poll due to the pandemic. Although, on their Facebook page, they promised, we'll have a proper party in four years' time. Meanwhile, stay safe. Also in 1924, Harry, along with hard-drinking journalist O.O. McIntyre, formed the International Barflies, a members-only club for guests. They had a secret handshake, tie pins festooned with top hat-wearing flies, and a set of rules that included Backslapping after six drinks must be tempered with mercy. Remember, IBFs have false teeth. And then there was this hard and fast rule. Remember, nothing is on the house but the roof. There's no question about it, the 1920s roared at Harry's, sometimes literally. Regular customer Ernest Hemingway was a favorite of Macalone, who once said, with just a little hint of awe in his voice, Hemingway could down 20 whiskey sours in one sitting and then go back to his hotel to work. But it was Hemingway's work as a bouncer that is the stuff of legend at Harry's. Rumor has it that an ex-welterweight champion liked to day drink at Harry's, trading war stories with Hemingway and the other famous clientele. Thing was, the fighter would bring his pet, a lion, who would stand beside him at the bar. Apparently, the lion had pretty good manners and only roared occasionally, but it did have the unfortunate habit of defecating on the floor and clearing out the bar. Harry asked the boxer, politely, not to bring the lion around anymore, but when the animal relieved himself on the writer's thong sandals, Hemingway had had enough. Realizing it was do or die for poor Harry's business, this time when the lion let go, I went over, picked up the pug, who'd been a welterweight, carried him outside and threw him in the street. Then I came back and grabbed the lion's mane, hustled him out of there. Out on the sidewalk, the lion gave me a look, but 
He went quietly. The situation with the lion may or may not be apocryphal, but Hemingway swore to A.E. Hotchner, his biographer and drinking buddy, that kicking a lion out of Harry's gave him the courage to begin his World War I bestseller, A Farewell to Arms. I figured if I was getting that aggressive with lions, the time had come to put my juice into a book. Another time, customers complained about the racket coming from the downstairs room. Who's the piano tuner making all that noise downstairs, they asked as the bartender sent down a steady flow of black velvets, a combination of stout and white sparkling wine to whoever was playing the same notes over and over again. The annoyed patrons finally got their answer when, two weeks later, George Gershwin emerged after writing the opening of An American in Paris on the bar's battered upright piano. Later, in 1936, Edward VIII popped by for a drink the night after he renounced the English throne for the woman he loved and received a standing ovation at the bar. The good times rolled at Harry's until Hitler's invasion of France. The Nazis took the place over as an officer's club, but left the bar untouched. Well, of course, they drank all the booze, but the decor remained the same. Harry spent the war years working at the Café du Paris in London and survived a direct hit from a German bomb on the place. He returned to Paris after the war, reopened his bar, found a new generation of customers, and hired Brendan Behan, who, after working behind the bar for a year or so, would go on to become one of the greatest Irish writers of all time. In the 1950s, Macalone bought a TV for the place so folks could watch Queen Elizabeth's coronation. The Queen walks with great calm and dignity to King Edward's chair. Here she stands, facing in turn the four sides of the Abbey, and the Archbishop of Canterbury presents her to her people for acceptance as their Queen. A few minutes in, he noticed everyone was watching television and not drinking. So, he grabbed a pair of scissors, cut the TV's cord in half and said, this isn't a thing for a bar. The cord has never been fixed. These days, the TV is still there, but there are fewer lions and soon-to-be ex-royals frequenting Harry's. But you can still feel their presence. Untouched by time, Harry's has remained in the Macalone family for decades and remains an oasis of old-world Manhattan in the heart of an ever-changing Paris. Old-school cocktails invented at the bar like the French 75, Sidecar, Old Pal, Scufflaw, Boulevardier, Monkey's Gland, and of course the Bloody Mary are still expertly prepared by a knowledgeable staff. It's not a trendy place, says current owner Isabel Macalone, but this is why it will never be out of fashion. That was Last Call, a history of Harry's New York bar in Paris, but stick around. It's time for the after party, where we get to spend just a little bit more time with Jared Brown and Anastasia Miller, who joined me on Zoom from England's West Country. They've written more than 30 books, among them the two-volume Spiritus Journey, a history of drink, which charts the history of spirits and mixed drinks from 7,000 BC to the mid-20th century. You can find out more about that book and them at mixellany.com. In the interview here, we talk about the Red Snapper, the unsinkable Molly Brown, acceptable variations on the Bloody Mary, and we also talk about why the origins of drinks are often so muddled. 
we begin with Anastasia shaking things up one night at Harry's by enraging the manager by suggesting she knew the original Bloody Mary recipe better than he did. This is what happened when she claimed the original recipe called for half vodka, half tomato juice. He went on a tirade <laughs> until he finally found a photograph in some shoebox down in the basement, grabs me up the next time, and I thought he was going to punch me this time. And he goes, no, you're right. See, I found it. I found it. And I'm like, what, what really <laughs> happened with that was there was another drink they were serving that was a non-alcoholic one, the collagen tomato juice cocktail. Mm -hmm. Now, that one had spices added. It's like it's the stuff that was made in, in Seattle somewhere mm. that has all the right and proper ingredients to make a proper Bloody Mary, including the Worcestershire and everything else. Right. It is spicy. And it was around during that time. Now... Whether, you know, I'm sure that eventually when Pete Petio came around to, to moving back to the U.S. with his wife, that's probably where they started working on it again. And he made it spicier and did all the nice things. But we had this running argument with the, with the manager at Harry's for at least seven months. Uh, he didn't want to believe that all it was was gorgeous French tomato juice and vodka. <laughs> well, was oh, it, guy? that's how I've been making them. And there's no, <laughs> there's no better Bloody Mary. There isn't. There really isn't. It's like in, in the UK, at least one person has kind of figured it out of how to, how to get British tomato juice to taste like French tomato juice. So he adds a little bit of posada. Oh. And so that brings up, the, brings up the bit of tomato paste that brings up the touch of sugar that you get in French tomato juice. Mm -hmm. And it makes all the sense. I have always loved the move that they do when they make the Bloody Mary at the bar for you. They put in the ice, they put in the vodka, the spices, and then they pick it up and they kind of twirl it between their hands a little yeah. bit. And that's a move that I hadn't seen before. I tended bar for oh, 17 or 18 years, but I'd never seen it before. Is that a Harry's thing or, or is that something that is much that's better? That's a Harry's version of rolling because of, of, the joke well, you can't you can't roll you can't throw and you can't shake yeah okay. use the word go for well, it um <laughs> it's because tomato juice is a is thixotropic it's a plastic colloid emulsion what that means is when you leave it sitting on the shelf it becomes increasingly a solid with agitation it becomes increasingly thinner. Take ketchup, for instance. You pick up the ketchup bottle, you turn it over, nothing comes out. You could put that in a clamp and leave it there for the day. It's not coming out, but hit it a couple of times and all of a sudden it's runny liquid and it's spilled out onto your plate, on your trousers, <laughs> onto the floor. That's because it's thixotropic and you've just converted it from a solid to a thin liquid through agitation. Do that to tomato juice and you've got a shake a Bloody Mary or throw a Bloody Mary, and it goes thin and watery. If you essentially fold the spices into it, you get a dense Bloody Mary because of this. So that's what they're doing. That is a revelation to me. I love that, that technique. <laughs> it is a fun one. Here's another fun one. You've heard of the Red Snapper, the Gin Bloody Mary. Yeah. Um, but where does the name Red Snapper come from? The, the apocryphal 
Oh, they told him that Bloody Mary was too profane, and so he chose Red Snapper. No, actually, Red Snapper was the brand of premix that Pedio was using. Oh, Red wow. Snapper brand premix, a spicy blend of tomato and clam. So it's so it's a bloody Caesar, really. You it's got a bloody it. Bloody Caesar. <laughs> Now, this was all the rage in the States and produced in, I believe, New York, Nashville, Seattle, San Francisco, if I recall correctly, up into the 30s from the late 1800s to the 1930s. And then it faded away. As far as I know, this is the last bottle with an intact label. That's incredible because you can't get a bloody Caesar or a decent bloody Caesar anywhere in the United States. I'm, I'm in Canada right now. It is, we, we claim it as our national cocktail. <laughs> Absolutely. What is it? Um, 350 million of them served a year in Canada. Something that high account oh, for at, consumption at brunch, for 10 million liters of vodka. Alone. It's it's really it it really is pervasive. If you go out for brunch anywhere here, it's a sea of bloody Caesars in front of you on all the tables. It's a beautiful thing. as it should be. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful drink. <laughs> Dearly love it. How do you feel about uh, some of the ways that people have uh, changed it? So there are Bloody Marys that come garnished with a hamburger or they're spiced with, you know, a house-made barbecue sauce. How do you feel about those? I think freedom of expression (laughs) and creativity are wonderful things. (laughs) And there will always be your Picassos and your five-year-olds with finger paints. Yeah, it's the truth. Some people can make a thing of beauty. As I say, the, uh, Brian uh, at Rules, uh, the, oldest, the oldest restaurant in London, Rules, uh, makes the most beautiful Bloody Mary. You know, he does little tweaks to it, but in the end of the day, he does the important things. It's the perfect, cons- perfect consistency on the tomato juice. It's the perfect amount of Worcestershire. Uh, you know, you get that spice right between the eyes, no matter what you do. He does sneak in a bit of Tabasco in there, but it's in the actual mix. And then he adds a touch of lemon juice, but not too much to make it like an American Bloody Mary, which is, yeah, (laughs) that's just sour. It's completely different tomato juice. If you go back to the French tomato juice at Harry's, those tomatoes are so sweet that it's nearly the equivalent of a screwdriver. It's sweet. Yeah. What yeah, and delicious. Oh, and yeah. Delicious. Is horseradish acceptable? For home, absolutely. For bars, sure. For competitions, no, no. You won't win a Bloody Mary competition with horseradish present in it. It always throws off the judges. Just visually, mostly, it, it costs a couple of points. So if you're competing in a Bloody yeah. Mary competition, Don't work care. on a horseradish infusion rather than fresh grated floating in the drink. I've, I've judged a couple of major Blaine Mary competitions over the years, I've watched this. Well, some people don't like that hairy stuff coming up off the bottom of the glass. Absolutely. Harry. Harry. <laughs> Harry. You know, Harry, the, Harry, not Harry's. No, Harry. not, no, not okay. Harry. Harry, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the only twists on a Bloody Mary, uh, because I am a purist, I, I, I like to keep it simple, 
it's the it's the kiss theory of making drinks keep it simple stupid and generally speaking they are better yeah. uh, but one and i haven't tried this yet but you freeze your bloody mary mix into ice cubes and then when you want a bloody mary you pour a glass of vodka and put the ice cubes in with everything already in them and as you swirl the drink it becomes more and more like a bloody mary I'll, I'll take you one step up on that. That's You put the Bloody Mary mix into the freezer, but you do it in a big open pan or like open flat container. And then every 20 minutes or so, get in there with a fork and just ruffle it around, oh, ruffle it around till it's frozen and you've made a granite. So once you've got the granite done, also keep the vodka or gin in the freezer. And keep shot, double shot glasses in the freezer. And then put those together and the granite won't melt. It will just be chips all stacked up in there. Then take a clear toothpick, dangle an oyster into that. <laughs> to me, that is one of the best ways to do a Bloody Mary. Wow. They well, copied that in New Orleans. No, they didn't. They had a cheap version of it. A cheap version of it, not as fancy. <laughs> no, no granite. That was just, you're thinking the oyster shot yeah. at Felix's Oyster Bar yeah. off of Bourbon Street, yeah. where I think a shot of vodka there was three bucks fifty, yeah. or a shot of vodka with an oyster in it was a buck fifty as an oyster shot. <laughs> We know which one was the loss leader, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they never quite figured out why we would just sit there having oyster shots. Right. Now, yeah. Harry's New York Bar is said to be the uh, birthplace of the Bloody Mary, which I'm, I'm, I'm on board for. I think you agree with me. Mm -hmm. uh, the French 75, the sidecar, and the monkey gland. Uh, is there any comment that you have on any of those cocktails? Sidecar, there is a possibility, Henry's or Harry's. Mm -hmm. Harry's or Henry's. I mean, it could have been down the block, it could have been yeah. up the block. Henry's, the bar just around the corner that yeah. closed years ago. Yeah, at the Chatham Hotel. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, it's, it's like there's a possibility, because everybody wants to lay claim to the drink. It's the best thing the French ever had. Yeah, let's, let's admit it. For French cocktails, it is the best classic that they ever had. Um, that, that one, I'm still not sure if it was Harry McElhone who did it. Yeah. Really not sure about that. It, it, when you look at his book, he didn't have that many cognac-style cocktails. So why would he all of a sudden come up with one? Right. Who knows? Yeah. French 75? Oof. Could have been, there's also a question of whether it was born at Ciro's. It could have been born at Ciro's. It could have been born at uh, Robert Vermeer's place. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could have been. It could have been that darn Belgian. I mean, um, it could have been. Yeah, it could have been Vermeer. It could have been Vermeer. I don't, I'm not too. I'm not too convinced that. Yeah, it does show up in that. this one. Yeah, it comes up in there. Yeah. And I'd have to say that the good chance is, is I'm going to go for the Belgian. No, They're laying claim to it in a number of things that, that I had read uh, about them. Uh, but it, it leads to the question, why are there so many contradictory uh, stories about the birth of these drinks? Is there something often in the zeitgeist or what is it? Um, success has many parents. Failure is an orphan. <laughs> 
You will never hear about the creator of the bunny hug, much less <laughs> for no competition for you know, different claims. Well, I have I have a text, a very long text message from the late Dick Bradsell, who went ballistic a few years ago before he passed away and said, who the hell ever said Dale DeGroff ever invented the espresso martini? How dare they? And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Here we go. I think I think a lot of it is is people want to lay claim to a drink without realizing that it's like God's great funnel and there's like a bunch of funnels in the world and somebody goes, hey, let's put vodka, cranberry juice, and a splash of Cointreau in and see what happens. And a whole bunch of people come up with something and go, hey, you just invented the Cosmopolitan. <laughs> you know, and no, I did. No, I did. You know, a very popular drink pre-prohibition, but never mind. Well, yeah, pre-prohibition uh, is the best one because it was made with gin and was made with a raspberry syrup instead of with cranberry juice, and it was mm. lovely. But mm. it was called a called a cosmopolitan. Did we lose uh, some cocktails to time during prohibition? Things that oh, had been yeah. very popular before, and then people just simply forgot. Oh, absolutely. Bees Does, knees. Oh, the bees knees was born in 1928 yeah. in a women-only bar in Paris, yeah. um, created by Mrs. J. J. Brown um, of Paris and Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> if you saw the film Titanic, uh, in that film she was played by Kathy Bates. Yeah, absolutely. Because we're talking about the unsinkable Molly Brown, who actually invented the Bee's Knees cocktail. And that's information that I uncovered uh, just about a year ago. Never been seen before. I was o'clock in the morning. reading about women's only bars in Paris in the 20s. And paragraph four talked about Mrs. J.J. Brown inventing the drink and gave the recipe. So I dug to find out who she was and just couldn't believe where that path took me. And just so you know, to make a bee's knees, get 50 milliliters of gin, 25 milliliters of fresh lemon juice, 25 milliliters of one-to-one -one honey syrup, combine the ingredients in an ice-filled cocktail shaker, shake, strain into a chilled cocktail glass, and pretend you're on the Titanic. My thanks to the beyond delightful Jared Brown and Anastasia Miller. Between writing books, doing historical research, and running the Sipsmith Distillery, that's the first newly licensed pot still distillery to open in London in over 180 years, they're currently curating a free online digital library of vintage cocktail, drink, and distillation books dating back to the 1750s at euvslibrary.com. And I have to thank the Last Call radio players, Daniel Milligan as Ian Fleming, Simon Rakoff as George Jessel, Lisa Morales as Mary Brown Warbutton, and Jerry Agar as Ernest Hemingway. My biggest thanks, of course, goes to you for listening. I hope you'll join us again next time when we have a look at the legend behind McSorley's Old Ale House. It's the oldest Irish saloon in New York City, and it's got an incredible history. That's coming up next time. The saloon opens at 8. Mike gives the floor a lick and a promise and throws on clean sawdust. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, and stay healthy. We'll talk again soon.